I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould, authors of the new book, The Valediction, Three Nights of Desmond, which details their multiple years, decades in fact, investigating the Soviet-Afghan conflict. Previously, they authored the books... Invisible History, Afghanistan's Untold Story, and Crossing Zero, the AFPAC War at the Turning Point of American Empire. At the center of their work is the Afghan Trap Hypothesis, the idea that Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, deliberately sought to drag the Soviet Union into Afghanistan to their detriment. In other words, to give the Soviet Union their own Vietnam. It's a fascinating conversation and I want to get right to it. But before we do that, a word from one of our sponsors, namely Joseph Matheny, the transmedia storyteller known for pioneering alternate reality games. He has a new audio drama called Zen. That is quite a mind-bender and available now on whatever your preferred podcasting app may be. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. The shadows, the void are all painted over. The magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, 
The Zen of the Other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, a dynamic duo, two guests that I've wanted to have on for some time now. I've read some of their uh, earlier works, including Invisible History, which is about Afghanistan. And I've also had the pleasure of beginning to read their latest book, The Valediction, uh, Three Nights of Desmond. And I'm really excited to be speaking with Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould. How are you doing today? Doing great. We're doing great. Thank you. Good to be here. Glad to be on your show. With regards to this book, it's hard to pick out one place to start because there's so many threads. It's like a giant spider web almost, you know. Uh, But I, I think a good place to start would be how you two began working together. I believe it was on a documentary about uh, arms control uh, that actually led you to have some conversations with the economist, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who I think is a very fascinating figure. And I found your exchange with him in this memoir to be rather interesting. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a great opportunity. Um, I had this very small talk show, two chairs and a plant. I think they referred to it at, at, as the time at the time, and I think they still do. Um, and um, it gave me it was a local TV station in Boston, and I, it gave me the opportunity to invite a lot of people. I was very politically active. A relative of mine had run for Congress uh, a couple of years before, and I you know kind of seen the thing for, inside the political system from the inside. We went to Jimmy Carter's inauguration. We went down to Washington in the, in the coldest day of the year, and we saw the whole thing happening, and we really believed, you know, having been very involved with the kind of anti-war movement back in the uh, uh, back in anti-Vietnam the anti-Vietnam war movement right. in the early seventies, right. and in seeing it happening all around us. I was at Boston University at the time, and you couldn't avoid it. I mean, it was just everywhere. And so, um, uh, you know, we we saw that by nineteen seventy six that there was really something happening, and we thought, wow, this guy Jimmy Carter really looks like he. This is an opportunity to really you know, change the political system. And uh, so anyway, uh, I, I wound up getting this talk show. I went out looking for a job in TV and wound up as the host of this talk show. And, and uh, they were running um, the station in 1978, 19, early 1979 was running a documentary about the arms race, an anti-SALT documentary. SALT was the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty talks. And uh, and so I went to the general manager and I said, you know, uh, you know, it is a public service. You you have this equal time provision. Back then there was something called, uh, you know, equal time. They were mandated. Yeah. yeah, the TV stations were mandated to put up an opposing point of view. And uh, and so I said, you know, I said, we got to do something. And so that's when we uh, Liz was, you know, uh, working locally. We were uh, to get we were married by that point. And uh I said, you know, let's let's work together on this documentary. So we bought some equipment and uh, started out, and that's that began it. And fortunately, in the in the Boston area, there were a lot of ex um, uh, Manhattan Project people, 
Philip um, Morrison and Phyllis Morrison were a couple. We called them up and said, you know, I mean, this is how easy it was to get the access at that point. But we called them up and said, we're doing a documentary about uh, the arms race. Can you talk to us? They said, we'll be over for lunch. <laughs> so uh, they came right over and uh, sat in our coffee table and we shared, you know, exchanged stories. It was so personal. It was wonderful. And then uh, John Galbraith opened his doors to us. We went and, and uh, sat in his living room for a couple of afternoons filming his you know, background. He'd been an, a member of the Strategic Bombing Survey at the end of World War II. He knew Paul Nitza personally, who was the father of the Cold War. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, these were people that he, he knew all the, he knew all the, the people. So it was an, a wonderful opportunity to go in and do this. Well, what we also really noticed, and I think it's important to frame it a little bit with the anti-Vietnam War movement, which we were very involved in, partly because Paul was in a production, the Boston production of Hair, which was the American rock musical that was became a kind of centerpiece for the youth of the country and brought in a lot of the actual many generations to really push for uh, the end of the Vietnam War. And, and by that point, you know, when Carter was elected, there was a feeling that we had real power and we felt we had made very important changes and we had the proof of it, the end of the Vietnam War. So all of this is happening. And as we're building this documentary, which is basically to support what an awful lot of people like Galbraith and Kennedy, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy and, and Paul Warren Key, who negotiated the SALT Treaty, were all pushing for. And it was, it was so powerful. Well, we, when this documentary ends up on the, pro, on the network that Paul was working at, and we end up doing the documentary before it actually could air, the Soviet Union crossed the border into Afghanistan. And it was as if, from our perspective, everything collapsed in terms of negotiation, peaceful solutions. The whole idea of the end of the Vietnam War, meaning it was going to be a reinvestment in the American civilian economy. You have to realize at that point, there had been so much damage to the American economy because of the Vietnam War. And that's not the military economy, not Wall Street, that is the civilian economy. So there was a lot of hope. Well, this, the minute that happened, it was as if it all evaporated. And that's what we witnessed. And that's why we were motivated. so focused we were on- Motivated. Right, to say what just happened, how it's like this was scripted the feeling that it was scripted. And when Carter came out and said the day after the invasion that this was the greatest, I think the day after something like that, this was the greatest threat to peace since the second world war. It was unbelievably clear to us that we had to find out what really happened. How did this happen? Yeah. So that's what drove us. So at that time, this is around uh, the, the late 1970s. And, and people will think, you know, oh, it's the Cold War. It must have been, you know, really tense. But in some ways, it seemed like things were moving in a better direction until uh, this issue with Afghanistan and the Soviet invasion occurs, correct? Once again, Paul Warnke told us personally, he said that he, that detente had actually begun during the Johnson administration in 1968 when he and uh, Robert McNamara, Defense Secretary McNamara, went to the Soviet Union 
there was there was a lot of pressure. People don't understand it today to the degree to which Vietnam was hurting the American economy. It was hurting America's position in the world and and not just from a moral perspective, but from a financial perspective. An enormous amounts of money were being run up. And and uh, and so that really had come due in 1971 when Nixon had to take the, the U.S. off the gold standard because the Germans and the Japanese who were supplying a lot of the consumer goods to the United States, while the United States was spending all this money on fighting this hopeless war in Vietnam, the Germans and the Japanese were saying the, U the U.S. government was inflating the currency intentionally so that they were paying back on, on, on uh, basically inflated dollars, what they owed. And so the Germans and the Japanese said, hey, we want gold. We want you to pay us in gold for what you're doing. We're not going to put up with your shenanigans any longer. And so as a result of that, Nixon, Nixon's people said, well, we'll take ourselves off the gold standard. So you can't demand we pay you in gold. Mm -hmm. And so that was, a, that was a hidden part of the economy that was going on in the early 1970s that had driven the United States to you know, get out of Vietnam and driven the anti, behind the scenes, driven the anti-war movement. So that was something that, uh, anyway, that that was what Warnke told us. He said in 1968, they were trying to lessen that pressure on the American economy and went to the Soviet Union to talk to them about how to get out of, uh, how to get out of uh, Vietnam. And at the time, he said, they were approached by a lot of very mid-level Soviet bureaucrats who said, look, we know this system isn't working very well. We know that we can't do a lot of things that we need to do in order to, for it to grow, but not growing at all. We're stagnating and we're being run by this senile bureaucracy at the top. So how do we get out of it? That's what we want to do. And so they began detente, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72. There was a very progressive movement. That's where the neocons stepped in. And the neocons stepped in and they said, now that we've got them on their back heel, now we can really have to start pushing them. That's when the that's when the drum roll started for war with the Soviet Union, increasing the arms race. The right wing came forward. Reagan became the hero du jour and in uh, the leader of that movement. Well, it, but it was all predicated on the way that they framed the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan being the greatest threat to peace right. since the Second World War. And that mantra clearly set the tone. And there was never any attempt to even present any proof, needless to say. Uh, in fact, you know, you could say that that was part of the reason we knew that it was so suspicious, because if Carter truly was so shocked, how could he know for sure what really happened? It, it, there was no time between the invasion itself and the, and the absolute statement that they, they well, were, it was the evil empire who was going to take over the world. The simple fact that he had brought Zbigniew Brzezinski, a, a noted anti-Soviet uh, thinker, and uh, one of the preeminent, him and Kissinger, right. he and Kissinger were basically the, the two leading uh, intellectual anti-Soviets at the time. The fact that he brought him in as his national security advisor guaranteed that things wouldn't turn out right, for detente anyway. And so that's why this event called the Team B, which was the right wing's official answer to detente, which was set out basically to destroy detente and destroy the SALT Treaty. That came about in 1976, around the same time Carter got, uh, got into the presidency. And, and that's, that's what Brzezinski used, the intelligence operation. He used, and, and this is what Charles Kogan 
the head of the Afghanistan operation told us, we suspected all of this stuff was going on. We talked to people off the record, but nobody would say it officially uh, during the 1970s and 1980s of what was going on. But we knew that these things were happening. And eventually over the, over the years, you know, the hardcore documentation that this stuff really was going on revealed itself. In fact, it was far worse than we had ever even imagined. And now, a word from one of our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Real quick, I just want to note, since you mentioned uh, Charles Kogan, for listeners, they should look up that name because he was actually in the, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, and you've actually uh, interviewed Kogan before he passed away. I believe uh, the video interview you did of him came out in 2015, maybe, I think, two years before he passed. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah it was a... It was a very interesting exchange. Um, we had written our book for uh, City Lights, uh, The uh, Invisible History, Afghanistan's Untold Story. So we were invited to uh, a roundtable, uh, a discussion group at, at Harvard, the Cambridge Forum. And so we, um, we presented our book and we arrive at the place and um, unbeknownst to us, the Cambridge Forum had, had brought in a guy by the name of Charles Dunbar who'd been the U.S. Chargé d'Affaires in Kabul in Afghanistan in 1983 when we were there. We'd met him then. And uh, when we brought Roger Fisher with us uh, from the Harvard Negotiation Project. And so that was a surprise. We thought, well, you know, this is the first time we've interfaced with him since the 1980s. And, uh, and then standing there, he was talking to a man that I, we knew, we had been in a documentary of, by a, a, a Canadian filmmaker who had interviewed Charles Kogan about along the, with us, along yeah. with us, and Charles Kogan was the uh, uh, director, was the chief of the Directorate of Operations for the Near East and South Asia for five years, uh, and um, and I think after that he went on to become the ambassador to uh, France, and uh, a very interesting guy, and he was at Harvard, he was associated with Harvard University at the time as an as a professor, associate professor, and so. Um, I saw him and he said, you know who I am? And I said, yeah, I know who you are. And uh, so anyway, he, when the, um, after our presentation, one of the first people up to the microphone was Charles Kogan. And he said, you know, I agree with everything you said about the Soviet invasion. Uh, it, you know, they really wasn't premeditated. They really weren't gonna go into the Persian Gulf. Uh, which I thought was a wonderful admission coming from 
a high-level CIA official, because that was the official meme at the time, was that the Soviets were going to take our oil in the Persian Gulf. And so he said, but I disagree with that whole business you said about Brzezinski being responsible for it. You know, he says, I just, Brzezinski had done an, an interview with the French uh, Nouvelle Observatoire in 1998, was it? Right. Yeah, 1998, in which he, uh, he claimed that he had intentionally lured the Soviets into Afghanistan and that it was a great idea, you know? And this and, is through like covert operations, right? You know, of course, yes. In fact, if you read Robert Gates's book, From the Shadows, he talks a lot about the fact that Brzezinski was aggressive from the minute he got in there in 1977. He immediately sent teams into the Soviet Union to start to agitate for, you know, getting them to do something stupid, basically, is what they wanted them to do, get them to, to, to act, and therefore on the perception that, you know, that they were going to lose control of Afghanistan or their own border area. And, and, and by the way, according to Charles Kogan, it was unknown to Charles Kogan that he was doing that. Well, that's all part of what. So anyway, so he claimed. defended Brzezinski yeah. right in front of the audience. He said, oh, no, Brzezinski would never do that. He said, the system doesn't work that way. <laughs> I ran the operation. I ran Operation Cyclone at the uh, at the CIA for Afghanistan for five years. And, you know, that never happened. So at any rate, uh, that was in 2000, what, at nine, 2000? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was in 2009. So um, we kept in touch with him. Uh, we got his email address and we kept in touch with him about certain things. And so I, I said to Liz in 2015 came, I said, we got to talk to him. We just really got to sit down with him the way we sat down with Paul Warnke and the way we sat down with John Galbraith. We really got to find out, you know, because when you, you make it personal like that, you, you know, they, they tell you things that don't go into the history books. So at any rate, um, and it's really exciting and very fulfilling. Uh, and so you get to know the person and, and what was going on behind their thinking. So he welcomed us to his home. He opened his home to us. We sat there and I brought the, I called up the cameraman that we'd taken to Afghanistan with us in 1981. And he gleefully said, oh, let's do this. So he brought his camera in and we sat in his living room and, um, he started to tell, I, I, you know, I started asking him questions just from behind the camera, not even with a microphone. I just started yelling questions at him. I gave him the whole framework that I'd worked up. I had looked at a lot of the research behind what had happened there. There had been a lot of conferences with the Soviets and the Americans, you know, that had talked about their thinking about what went on on both sides of the aisle. So anyway, so he gets, I get about oh, three or four minutes into the discussion, into the question, and he said, can I tell you something? about Brzezinski? And I said, oh, please, you know, you have the floor. So he said, there was a, there was a, uh, a, memorial. a, a memorial service for Samuel Huntington at Harvard University. He'd passed away. And Samuel Huntington had worked with Brzezinski. And so Brzezinski came up to it. And he said, I, I never met Brzezinski personally. And I told him, I said, you know, I never believed that whole story that you said that you, the interview that you gave for Novell Observatory, that you intentionally lured the Soviets into Afghanistan. And Brzezinski looked at him and said, well, it's true, I did. And he said, you did? And he said, yeah, you guys over at Langley didn't know what was going on at the White House, at the National Security Council. We actually did intentionally lure them in. We wanted to, to get even for Vietnam. That was the whole purpose of it. And so he said, you know, and so Kogan sat back and he said, you know, he said, I was there for five years running that operation and I never got a whiff 
of what Brzezinski was doing at the White House. So I don't know what that's a testimony to, either ignorance or you know the compartmentalization of the U.S. government. Well, also that things get done without you know people who are running the show even knowing about it. No, I actually think it was a testament to the level of secrecy that Brzezinski yeah. was able to maintain uh, from just about everyone. In fact, he totally almost controlled Carter at a, such a level that he could keep people out of interfering with his agenda. By I was going to say, didn't he? Isn't there talk that he had kept uh, certain information from Carter if he thought it wouldn't uh, go oh, yes. along with Absolutely. his agenda? Absolutely. By all means, exactly. Oh, yeah. So there was a lot of his office was right across right. the right across the hall. Right. In fact, he would he would basically come in and sit in on meetings okay. that Carter was having with people that he was afraid would give him the wrong information, and so. he would basically act as a buffer to oh. Carter himself. Actually, so Sven, he was a kind of Svengali to Carter. Carter just was completely sucked into his whole, uh, you know, European worldview, uh, you know, deep history. This is what we're there for. And Carter too was, you know, was a Navy man. Admiral Rickover was his was his uh, mentor uh, in the U.S. Navy. So he really was a military man. And uh, you know, there's some there's a lot of information that's come out since about the fact that Carter was really into the whole idea of, of war, nuclear war fighting. Uh, from a, almost like a video game type approach to it. Very immature. Yeah. Right. So, and I think also that was one of the things about Carter when he was running for president, he was really mostly presented as a peanut farmer and the Navy background was kind of pushed to the side. Um, and, and when it really came down to it, it was pretty clear that his military alliance, his military allegiance was clearly far stronger than anyone understood or many Americans understood who put him in office to basically push for a peaceful solution and the end of the Vietnam War. So I, I don't want to stick on this too much because I know there's other things we have to cover, but that that interview in uh, I, I think it's. I am not good with my French, uh, but Le Nouvel Observatoire. Right. Yeah. So, so Brzezinski gave that interview. And I guess people always say, well, he disowned that interview and said it was out of context or he didn't actually say that and he was mistranslated. But then he's telling uh, Charles Kogan uh, that, no, that that is true. Uh, what are we to make of all this uh, debate about that one specific interview? Well, I think that we have to look at Brzezinski's record and we have to look at what actually happened and also notice the fact that Brzezinski is well known for switching his, you know, his story. So I think that probably is the least important part of it. In fact, we actually, Noam Chomsky actually told us he did not believe that Brzezinski really did it. He was just boasting. So what I feel we're getting from people like Noam Chomsky, as an example, is really a way to discount a part of the story that the official narrative part of the process did not want to happen. In fact, I think Brzezinski really undermined the, 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 you know, the whole idea of controlling the narrative by what he did. So, and they did not like that but they had to live with it. So Brzezinski played with it. But the proof that I think you saw in the paper we wrote about President Carter, uh, the Connor Tobin piece, I do think we laid out a pretty solid case that based on the acts that Brzezinski was associated with, there is no question that, that what he claimed in that, what, what the translation of course that was made 
does add up that in fact he did do that and what he said to Charles Kogan was true. I think another area we have to get into is the death of Ambassador uh, Dubs and that whole story and I guess just more generally how your investigation into Afghanistan ends up giving a different picture than maybe the the way it was being painted in the media and um, certain academic outlets at the time. Well, you know, the fact is, is that the media, there were a lot of guys in the media, and we met, we met one of them, particularly at CBS News, who really wanted revenge against the Soviet Union for what he felt that they did to them in Vietnam. And he felt that the United States had been humiliated uh, by the Russians, particularly. They held them responsible. And uh, whatever had happened in North Vietnam, whether it was the Vietnamese or not, it was like the Vietnamese weren't important and the Afghans weren't important. What was important is what the Soviets did to us. And that was a priority on behalf of the, of the, of the mainstream media, specifically CBS News. They took the lead in it and Dan Rather in particular. And I found it, we found once again, we found these, the same people keep showing up that are carrying this torch. Uh, you know, and setting the buildings on fire. You know, it's the same person or the same group of people every time that are doing it. And Dan Rather was uh, leading the crowd on, 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 a, on the Kennedy assassination. He was right there. And then once again, when the Soviets invade Afghanistan, he's right there. And he went over, he did a coast-to-coast broadcast uh, in the spring of uh, 1980, right after the Soviets had invaded, in which he really, he pulled out some really old propaganda lemons to, to, to present to the American public about, you know, he had, he interviews somebody, uh, a, an Af- a, a Pakistani woman up in the mountains who basically says, oh, America's asleep. If they don't wake up pretty soon, the Russians will be rolling down the streets of, uh, of Washington, D.C., you know, and he, that was the kind of stuff he was pulling out, you know, uh, Casablanca from, you know, 1943 in terms of you know, if we don't do this now, if we don't support the these courageous Afghan freedom fighters, then, you know, uh, then we're going to be in big trouble. Nobody ever, ever asked, except for very early on, there was one reporter at the Boston Globe, Mary McGrory, who wrote, a, who wrote an article, a piece and right in early 1980, who said, why is the United States supporting a bunch of drug running uh, bandits in the mountains of Afghanistan? And, and uh, she was quickly ushered off the scene and, and w- when it fell into the whole Dan Rather thing. The Columbia Journalism right. Review actually did a piece about it early on that was asking the big question as to how, how did this all just go away? How did all the questions about these people that we were supporting in Afghanistan who were ca- creating all this chaos in that part of the world prior to uh, the Soviet invasion, how come they're now heroes? So it really was a it really was a Manichaean situation. It really was black and white. And as soon as the Soviets crossed the border, uh, everything changed. And um, you know, people look to 9/11 and say, "Oh, everything changed in 9/11." No, it didn't. Everything changed when the Soviets crossed the border into Afghanistan in in December of 1979. The, the actual effect of that crossing the border created the causes belli that the neocons had been feasting off of since December 27th, 1979, and they've never let go of it. And that is the reason that Connor Tobin was writing his article in 2020 to try and dismantle the one most important piece of evidence 
that the actual man who actually claimed he did it is on public record of stating he actually did. Can you imagine if there was someone within the um, institution, the bureaucracies of the US that could come out like a Brzezinski and say, I was the one behind the JFK assassination. I made it happen. That was the equal to what Brzezinski revealed, but it was about the Soviet invasion. Right. And of course, we know that the role that Ambassador Dubbs played was in total, con he was actually the polar opposite of what Brzezinski was. And that dynamic was deeply affected by the death of Dubbs. And that's where Brzezinski was able to take the death right. and automatically automatically because the mainstream media had already set the stage for this being a totally uh you know they were going to take over the world that was the meme right. that was being put out now right. and that became that the the sort of the the angle that the mainstream media held and there was never any wiggle room in it at all so when we entered into it Okay, looking at it, that was the point in 1979 and then into 1980. But when Dan Rather did his report in the spring of 1980, it was in December of 1979 when it first happened. The spring of 1980, there was a little wiggle room going on in the media trying to figure out what was happening. But once Dan Rather did his 60-minute report, it was if the, the word had gone out, this is the meme, this is the narrative, everybody else got shut down. And I think we now understand that process. I think now we've lived through the Iraq war and the, you know, the fake, uh, you know, um, information that was put out by the New York Times and all of these other things. But back then, it, it was much easier for them to pull that off and very few people noticing except us. Well, that's where, that's where uh, Spike Dubbs comes in, the U.S. ambassador. The U.S. ambassador, uh, to Afghanistan from the United States had gone in there in the summer of 1978 with a specific intention of keeping the Soviets out of Afghanistan. He saw he had a nuanced perspective of the situation. Uh, he had been in, he had been uh, in the in the American embassy in in Moscow in, during the 19 what was it 62 uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. He was very well aware of what the Soviets would take as an aggressive position versus, you know, just political, you know, uh, mouthing off, which, which they're very well aware of. The, you know, both countries would make statements or they'd make, you know, shows of force or this or that, whatever. But behind that, there were real motives and there were real people. That's what they call Kremlinologists would look at who made the statement and say, oh, we don't have to worry because that guy made the statement and he's, he's got control of the situation. Well, they do the same thing. They look at who's making the statements here in the United States back then, and they would say, oh, we don't we know that that's just, you know, for public consumption for the American people. That's not for you know, that's not a serious uh, threat. So that would happen a lot. And um, and so that's what we tapped into. We tapped into what was really going on behind the scenes. And so uh, that's when uh, we did our documentary, uh, Afghanistan Between Three Worlds. Uh, in 1981-82, in that time period, it got out on the PBS system about our experience there. And it was very different. It was a completely different approach to what was going on. And we, we looked at what it was that we had seen and the people that we had talked to and said, this is our impression, this is all it is. And so Roger Fisher from the Harvard Negotiation Project took one look at it and said, this is exactly what I want the negotiation project to do. I want to put Americans in their shoes. 
see how they make decisions based on what it is they do. And so anyway, um, so he agreed to go back to Afghanistan with us. And so uh, we also, at the same time, we got a letter from Selig Harrison, who was at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace at the time. And he was one of the very few people who had really done the background work on Afghanistan. He'd been a Washington Post correspondent. He'd been, I think, a bureau chief in that part of the world for a number of years. So he would really, he would go around and interview people all over that place. And, and uh, so we really got an, an education from him. He asked if we could make the communication for him to the Afghan government people that we had made because he, Afghanistan was one of his focuses. So we went down to Washington, we talked to him. He gave us the whole story about Adolf Dubs and what a shame it was that he had been killed. He said, because he was one of the few nuanced people inside the American establishment at the State Department and the foreign policy community who really understood what diplomacy was all about and what kind of diplomacy the Russians were using during that time period. He said there just wasn't anybody else in the American system that really had that kind of sophistication. And so he told us, he laid it out. He said he had gone, Sig Harrison had actually gone to Kabul and sat down that summer before his wife even got there to discuss with him what he was going to do, what his strategy was for Afghanistan. The objective was to keep Afghanistan as a neutral buffer state that had been established by the British Empire in the early 20th century, late 19th century, as a, as a, as a buffer between the British Empire and the Soviet Union. And so that's what he was going to do for the United States. He was going to reestablish that buffer state status for Afghanistan, which meant calming the Russians down, calming the Soviets down, while at the same time working the Afghan government closer to the United States with various incentives that might be under the table, they might be over the table, but they wouldn't be anything that would upset the Russians to, enough so that they would come in and invade. And of course, what happened? The Russians came in and invaded. So there was this intrigue going on, but the intrigue was really in Washington. The fact was, is that, as he told us, Dubs was not informing Brzezinski about what he was doing because Brzezinski had a very covert action operation attitude about it. He would, had put himself, he'd real, he had reassigned the Carter White House so that all the important stuff came across his desk, that anything that involved a place like Afghanistan or Poland or anywhere in the world, Cuba, would go to Brzezinski first. So what he did was, and this is what Chuck Kogan affirmed, was that he had rearranged it, he'd rigged the system, so that he could do pretty much anything he wanted to do. And that's what Sig Harrison told us. So I said, do you think Brzezinski was responsible for the Soviet invasion? And he said, this was early on. And he said, I don't wanna go on the record as saying that, but the fact is, is that all the evidence indicates that that's what happened. So, so yeah, for, I'm sorry. Well, just for my listeners that, I think people like us that have uh, read about the, the Afghan trap we sort of know what that means, but I may have listeners that are wondering, well, how, what, what would Brzezinski have done to lure the Soviets into Afghanistan? What were the actions sort of taken to get the Soviets in? Well, what he did was he started provoking the whole idea that the, the nationalities <coughs> working group was what Brzezinski brought into the Carter White House. And what that was set up to do in 1977, 
when he first came in was to try to provoke some kind of, 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 of um, you know, like the color revolutions we see today, a color revolution in the Muslim re republics of the Soviet Union, which were on the border of Afghanistan. That's what Brzezinski was trying to do. That's why he was backing the Mujahideen. That was the whole point. They were actually un, uh, uh, emptying out the jails all over the Islamic countries and sending all their gangsters and, and warlords and drug dealers to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. Well, that was actually set up before the Soviets even got in there. And that's how Brzezinski did it, by creating destabilization on the southern border of the Soviet Union. So that he knew if they provoked enough destabilization, the, the Soviets would be forced to come in because not only were they concerned about Afghanistan, they were concerned about their southern republics. The, they were Muslim and the spreading of this into their Muslim republics. So this is the, literally how it happened. So when you when you look at, uh, for instance, in 1983, when we brought Roger Fisher to um, Afghanistan to try to figure out how to negotiate the Soviets out, the Soviets were very clear. You have to stop the provocations coming from Pakistan. Pakistan was basically promote, you know, was 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 basically there was training and they were facilitating the Mujahideen to basically constantly destabilize the Afghan government. So these were all the provocations. And that's actually what finally caused the Afghan government to call the Soviets in to help them, because the provocations were definitely becoming a problem for the government to maintain. So this is all part of the reality. But what people don't realize, most people don't realize is that, and of course, if your only you know, a source of information might've been the film, Charlie Wilson's War, what you would believe is that absolutely the Soviets first invaded and then all this chaos happened, okay? Which is absolutely not the case at all. It was in fact the opposite. And that's where Brzezinski comes in. You know, you get this simplistic uh, look at what's going on from the from the mainstream media because that's what they're there to do. They're there, you know. It's as a an AP correspondent told us when we went back to Kabul in 2000, 2003, He said that he said the Home Office wants it simple and clear. He said the problem is is that it's not simple and clear, and so that's what they're they're in the business of selling you an agenda. And uh, this is what happened with Adolf Dubs. He got him. He got himself in the middle of a conflict of a force majeure that was happening inside the American government at that time period, when the the uh, neocons were making a full court press on taking over the levers of power. And this was the early late 1970s, and uh, the, this transition was happening. And one of the things that had been created. By the CIA had been, it got itself in a lot of trouble with the Church Committee. The Church Committee had exposed and the, and uh, a lot of the things that they had been doing illegally, and with or just simply without the authority to do overthrowing governments and assassinating bureaucrats and assassinating people in foreign countries. And so, as a result of that, when Carter got in, he brought in Stansfield Turner, a Navy guy, the technical end of it. Who said, "All right, we're going to get rid of all these agents who are problematic, and we're going to we're going to replace it with uh, satellite photos, and and we're going to use technology in order to do it." And you discovered that there's a, a clear delineation between the the hardware guys and the software guys inside the inside the institution. 
<clears throat> so this was a case where the hardware guy got put in charge and all the software people went to this thing called the Safari Club. All the people, all the connections that the CIA had been making in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s, the Saudis stepped in and they were looking for, they were looking to cultivate favor from Washington, which was dominated in many cases by the, uh, the Israeli-oriented Zionists. And they said, look it, we'll take on the burden here. We'll help you out. We'll work with the, we'll work with the Israelis to, to, to do this. We'll find a point of interest. We've been working with the Israelis for, throughout history. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, we'll set up a separate operation and a separate bank to take care of the covert operation. You won't even have to know about it. And so this is what Adolf Dubbs got himself caught up in the middle of. They set up something called, or they utilized the thing through French intelligence called the Safari Club. And the Safari Club was just named for some, some hunting club that they used to meet in, in, meet at. Uh, the in ver various intelligence people, high level intelligence people used to operate out of, to overthrow governments back in, the, in Africa and in South America back in the 1960s and early 70s. And so this, this, is what, this is what was going on. In fact, you also had another complication added to it. You had uh, the Chinese Maoists were also operating. Some of the parties in Afghanistan that had come to power in 1978 were Maoist oriented. They were oriented towards China as opposed to the Soviet Union. So you had this kind of political mishmash that was going on that was very complicated. It required a very astute observer to understand what was going on. And this is exactly what Adolf Dubbs was doing. And this is why he was a problem for Brzezinski's plan. And we're not saying that Brzezinski intentionally did this. We're saying to Dubs. To Dubs. Yeah. We're not saying that he's put out an order to have him, have him executed or kidnapped. What we're saying is the fact that the milieu was just so messed up at this particular time. And you had a guy in there who basically had decided a career American diplomat, very sophisticated, who had decided that he had the ability to go in there and straighten it out for everybody's purposes. He'd make the Russians happy. He'd make Washington happy. The only problem was he wasn't making Brzezinski happy and his, and his neoconservative backers. And he wasn't making the Saudis happy because the Saudis and the rest of the Arab world wanted to move their influence into South Central Asia, which they had been trying to do for centuries and had been unable to because the Afghans, the Pashtuns were very strong and capable of keeping them out militarily. And so you had this incredible, almost, almost a not atom bomb type thing with all the ingredients being put together and Adolf Dubs was in the middle of it and it exploded. So it's important too, because if all this intrigue is going on, uh, you know, it would seem important to the, the broader story in, in the sense that, you know, I think a lot of people, they almost start at uh, the, the Soviets invade Afghanistan and then, you know, Brzezinski goes to support the Mujahideen and gives his whole line about uh, telling them that land over there is yours and one day it will be yours again. But you're saying, no, uh, th this, this starts before a lot of that. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Oh yeah. yeah. It's you know what what Brzezinski did was it's political theater. Okay. I actually happen to have a a degree, a BA in theater, so I, I'm very well versed in it. Uh, the idea of behind the scenes orchestrations, what's going on, setting the stage properly, getting the right actors to come in and and behave and say the right lines. 
I mean, it's it's a theater. It was crafted. And if you're going to give credit to Brzezinski for anything, it's the brilliance in which he carried the whole thing off. But he did it. He was able to do it so much because he had the support of a very powerful intellectual core of people, the neoconservatives, uh, who were willing to, to go, go ahead and do actions on the ground that were basically uh, you know, going to support what Brzezinski wanted, his meme. And, uh, and so that was it. And you also had an institution in Washington that was desperate to re recover its reputation after, after Vietnam. I don't think people today, it's hard for people today to understand the vacuum that was created by the loss of Vietnam in 1975. That had never happened to the United States. The United States was the you know, the great mediator of the world and the great victor of World War II. And all the movies were made about it and how wonderful the United States was and how we eradicated Nazism and, and turned our, our, our gaze towards this evil thing called the Soviet Union. And, and here we were defeated in Vietnam. Now, how could that possibly happen to one of God's anointed nation? And so that's what we were up against. And so everybody, bought into it, they, they sailed into it. When that door opened, everybody in Washington said, oh, the heck with diplomacy, the heck with moderation, let's just go for it, let's get it. Let's what, get the Russians there. What, and that's what, what they did. One of the questions we asked Charles Kogan was about uh, whether he had any concern about what had happened through Brzezinski effect on the Afghan people. And it was quite interesting to hear his very quick <coughs> response. Basically, he didn't care at all because they got the Soviets for Vietnam. So that that was really a, a way to claim back what they felt they had lost and they put all the blame on the Soviets supporting the North Vietnamese. He actually felt that the Soviets hadn't suffered enough because yeah. they didn't lose enough troops. Right, because they lost, we lost 58,000. They didn't lose enough. That's and what, so I, what I, I, I consoled said, him yeah. by saying, well, you know, I said their commitment was always a lot smaller anyway. I said they never put more than 75,000 or 100,000 troops into Afghanistan in the first place. Right, so right. on a percentage basis, it was about equal. And he accepted He that. accepted that as a, <laughs> as a rationale, yeah. So before we close out, I just had two more things I wanted to get into. Uh, we've mentioned the neocons a few times uh, and Team B. We, we could even get into characters like Pipes uh, and, and these other characters. But I, I guess for people that hear that term a lot, and don't know what it means. How would we sort of sum up the neoconservatives? Because they have a very, very strange history uh, involving an association with uh, Trotskyism and uh, even game theory. Please. Well, exactly. I think the neocons really, um, in many cases, were Trotskyists. I mean, um, the, the, the idea that they were originally a communist, okay, for a lot of people might be a big shock. And we all remember in the McCarthy era that McCarthy was claiming that there were all these communists within the US government. What many people might not have understood is that many of them were ex-communists, but they were Trotskyists. They were not Stalinists or Marxists or Leninists. And that is a huge distinction. Uh, Trotsky was actually the one who was supposed to win um, you know, at the end of the Bolshevik revolution. He was the banker's um, choice, let's put it that way. And when that didn't happen, you know, he ended up basically, uh, you know, exiled out of the Soviet Union um, and became a, a, a huge attraction for an awful lot of individuals 
who were really losing faith, especially after the collapse of Wall Street in 1929. And there was a belief in you know, World War One, and that there was a belief that there were things shifting. And so we have a, a process of thinking. Well, Trotskyism at its root is actually really a very a revolutionary. The idea is to spread revolution. It is endless war, effectively. It's a mentality. And so what the Trotskyism really brought into the US, which ironically was kicked out of the Soviet Union by, by Stalin, okay, was this activation process, this endless activation. It's almost as if they don't really have a philosophy per se. What they have is a belief of this engine constantly provoking. Um, the, the, uh, the way I would put it is, I feel like, I mean, I've talked to people that, that, that have called themselves Trotskyites before, and I think they have this idea of a perpetual revolution. The, the right. work of revolution is never done. It's right. just continuous. It's almost right. like a, a, a forever revolution. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's this dialectical materialism right. concept, okay, where you're always working towards perfection. By starting a fight, you get the other guy to, to display his abilities, and then and then you get to know your own weaknesses, and then you come back with your strengths, and you go back and forth and back and forth, and it's an intellectual regime that's kind of in, 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 imbued with a certain group of in, people. In fact, it was the opposite view yeah. that Stalin had taken. That was one of the things that was very yeah. interesting about uh, you know, what was underlying okay, the mm -hmm. crisis that Trotsky came up against was the fact that um, this idea of endless revolution right. really misses uh, the development of a nation within itself. And, and at, the, at the time of the Bolshevik revolution, this country really was not industrialized. They didn't have a lot of the basic uh, developments that, many, you know, that was beginning to happen, obviously, in the West and certainly in the European countries and in the United States. So this was a very important stage that Trotsky actually um, would not have pursued. And I think that that is the problem with the limit of this idea of focusing only on the revolution and never on the building. And that, I think, is what we got infected with. Well, I think that's the infection that came It certainly it. explains what's happened to the United States. Yeah. I mean, where, you know, our infrastructure has been crumbling since the 1960s. It needed to be rebuilt. It had been, it had been rebuilt during the uh, uh, Roosevelt administration in the 1930s. But that's another thing that got us involved in this thing. Say, so why is all this money getting poured into this phantom uh, arms race with the Soviet Union when it doesn't need to be, when diplomacy would serve to get to rebuild the United States and we can get back on an even keel. And no, 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 we must continue this war because the war is never ending. And so it never does end. It constantly wears things out. And that's where we are right now as a nation. Yeah. We're at this place where we haven't got anything left to give. <laughs> I mean, we're, you know, we're being stripped of our basic liberties because of the, the most recent concocted, you know, war against something or somebody, or it's a war on terror, or it's a war, a war on a disease, or it's a war on this, or a war on cancer, or, or now it's a war in Ukraine, it's a war against Russia, it's a war against China. It's never going to end, folks. Well, that, that, oh, well there, there, are, there are people, there are beneficiaries. I've, I've often, I've, in, in the sense that uh, the American people aren't the beneficiaries, but I've often said to people, you know, uh, the forever wars, I mean, it was like a giant uh, handout, maybe like a subsidy for the state of Virginia. I mean, defense contractors in right. Virginia. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, well we think... got plenty of those around right. here, too. Yeah. 
But the fact is, is that, you know, once again, if you're not producing, ultimately, if you're not producing anything that is genuinely productive, you will lose the support of the people. You'll lose the support of the masses. And that's what's happening now. And the masses are realizing they're not a part of this equation. Right. When the United States is now in the process of losing its role as the reserve currency, and once that really takes off, the, you know, I think that's going to be when the American people finally are going to be confronted by the truth about living on debt, endless debt that has been financed by the world. Empires don't end well. I mean, if you look <laughs> historically at, at those countries in the world in history who've had empire, uh, uh, imperial ambitions, uh, you know, uh, Britain at the end of World War II had lost its empire. It was a devastated, destroyed place. I mean, I recall going to Ireland in 1971. And, uh, you know, you, if you wanted to buy a car in Dublin in 1971, you had to go to a Ford dealer and he would open a catalog to show you the cars. They had no inventory. They had no resources. They had nothing. They're, 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 the, the economy of Britain which they were still pretty much under the control of. They had their political independence, but they were still under the economic control of London. Uh, you know, it was a devastating uh, thing. And, and the British Empire was extremely good at extracting profits uh, and, and keeping subordinate nations under their heel. So um, we're now going to be experiencing that as Americans, and it's going to be very uncomfortable for us. It's funny because I recently had Alfred W. McCoy on my show and he said the exact same thing you're saying that uh -huh. you know we're going to be filling a lot of the things we've done in the past <laughs> right yeah exactly we're going to be getting the consequence americans are now going to be getting the, an understanding of the consequences of what it is to be so under somebody else's heel and uh and americans are not going to like it but it's going to be a rude awakening a necessary awakening well unfortunately a necessary awakening yeah. but you know we're, we're hopeful that you know, a better world can come of it, certainly a better United States. Well, what we, we really if we can do, stay together as a country. Right. No, but what we, we really like to focus on is the idea of really ending the concept of empire. It's not about the next empire that's going to emerge. It's about changing our thinking profoundly to realize that we really need to put that in a proper place. It, whatever purpose it served, it's over. Its usefulness to us is over, I think. And that's where I think some you know, clear thinking, mature people have to emerge, you know, yeah. out of this and begin talking in a very different language about what, you know, where we need to rethink and go. Last thing, sir, I want to clarify something uh, quickly about uh, Team B. Uh, for, for listeners that are unfamiliar, basically Team B was, I mean, I guess a, a really crude way of putting it would be like cooking the books when it came to intelligence, this is a problem that Melvin Goodman, uh, CIA and State Department analyst who sort of has blown the whistle on this, uh, has talked about. He calls it uh, the politicization of intelligence. Um, yes. Is there anything you want to add to that for people that are unfamiliar with this idea of politicization of intelligence and the problems of it? Well, there's a, a woman by the name of Anne Hessen Kahn uh, who wrote a book about this 20 years ago. Uh, she was a government person who was involved with a lot of the people involved and she's involved. I mean, you could probably find an interview with her. I know she's, there was a, an interview that was done by the, B, there was a show that was done by the BBC called The Power of Nightmares. And she's interviewed in there. And she is, is, uh, is asked about the Team B projections. Richard Pipes was the leader of the Team B. He was a known Russophobe. 
another Polish immigrant to the United States. And they basically took all these, all these ancient animosity, ethnic animosities against Russians, put them into this US government institution that contradicted the official supposedly nonpartisan CIA analysis, unpoliticized analysis, and basically politicized it. And that's what happened. And Anne Hessing Khan is an interview. They asked, the interviewer said, what about, what about these things? Uh, what, what did Team B get right? She said, nothing. She said it was an absolute, complete fabrication. She said they would see, you know, if, I, if, if they were asked, uh, where's the evidence for this? They said, there's no evidence because the, the Soviets are so good at hiding things. And they'd say, well, there's a, you know, you have a picture here of a silo. The CIA would say it was a grain silo in the Ukraine someplace. And the, and the team B would say, oh, that's a missile silo. They said, how do you know that? And I said, well, because they want to attack us. I mean, it was all because that's what the Russians want to do. And so it was always this team B Trotskyite thing where anything that was anything, a tractor would be turned into a tank, uh, you know, anything. And so she said that there was absolutely nothing about it that was the fact that there was no submarine that they could find that had a secret propulsion stuff that the, that the CIA hadn't found. She said, they would say, Richard Pipes would say, well, that was proof that it existed. The fact that we couldn't find the evidence. They're very good at hiding things. So anyway. And the last odd and end here that I wanted to touch on, I, I promise to let you go because I know I'm probably keeping you a minute or so over here already, but you know, I, I've always found Brzezinski uh, to be a very fascinating character. And we were talking before we got on air about that and about how his views on Russia, especially near the end of his life, seem to have changed. And he also would write about, these are the things that uh, America must do if it wants to uh, maintain its status as the mm -hmm. global hegemon. And right. he was essentially warning elites, saying, yeah, exactly. you, you aren't paying attention. You have yeah. to do this, this, and this. Uh, do you think there's something... What do you think of that, like Brzezinski's evolution and almost, do you think he played a role in uh, sort of our own downfall and then saw it when it was it's too the late? Dr. Faustus thing. I mean, he, he clearly was playing Dr. Faustus to the, to the elites and the powerful and then found himself saying, wait a minute, you took, my, you took me too seriously. You took me too far. Well, you took my ideas were very successful. So you, you, you got very upset from what we saw towards the end of his life. He was well, I, I think there is actually a real reason behind his, his shifting. He had delivered the causes belli of all time. His point, I think, after a while was you, you, you have to begin to mature as an empire. Okay, you already have controlled the world. It's now, you know, what we're talking about was probably in between uh, 2001, where he came out very carefully about what had happened and he did not like the responses that he was seeing. I think he could tell that, especially after 2001, that the United States was beginning to show uh, what happens when there is no counterbalance for an empire. And it begins to go, and we right. call it late stage imperial dementia, by the way. And that's what was beginning to happen. And Brzezinski was aware they were losing sight of a necessary transformation within the American empire itself. And I think by 2016, Brzezinski was literally listing the point he actually is quoted. And I think it was a year before he died, 
that the United States is still the most powerful country in the world and all these wonderful things, but it must, it cannot use its military basically in the same manner anymore. So I think what he realized, and probably because he got the total satisfaction of feeling he had destroyed the Soviet Union. What more could he have lived for? Right, right. So he was over the imperial crazy thing that drove him his whole life. But a lot of the new, you know, imperial imperial-minded bureaucrats coming along right. hadn't had that high yet. Yeah. I mean, so they needed to keep doing it. Then that's where you get your neocon insanity. The institutions, and this is part of the corruption of the entire system in this country, in the West itself is the institutions that should be that should have been responsible for maturing a younger crop of, of diplomats and politicians failed miserably they went for the money they went they simply uh, their their most important credentials were the fact that they were supposed to improve the intellectual capabilities of this class of bureaucrats and to support their own technocracy and as a result of that they didn't we have a very immature, I mean, profoundly immature approach to world affairs, to each other in this country. The older generation of people who actually knew where the switches were to turn things on and off, where the valves were to make sure the submarine didn't sink, they're gone now, okay? We have a whole, yes, we have a whole group of people that unfortunately are not prepared for the challenges that are faced by the country right now. I just wanted to say, I, I think that's a really apropos observation, too, because I think we we see that with Brzezinski becoming more critical near the end of his life and saying, you know, you, you aren't seeing what, what's going on here. It's the elites. And I think you also see it even with um, a character like uh, Francis Fukuyama, who uh, goes from being very supportive of the sort of neocon agenda, Iraq war and this end of history hypothesis to basically uh, saying, you know, I was wrong about the end of history. So it seems like there's a lot of characters of this nature. Well, at least he could admit it anyway. Right. Well, yeah. you know, it, it, one of the most one of the most annoying um, ways that these people act is that they don't use the power when they're in an office, but they become stand on their soapbox after they leave office when they have no power and start saying the right things. And I think that is a, is a very real symptom of the problem. Once you're in that imperial realm, I think you get the disease. But when you leave it, you see more clearly what yeah. should be done, but you have no power anymore. Well, I want to thank you, Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gold, for coming on Parallax News. Uh, could you tell my listeners how they can get a copy of The Valediction? And maybe uh, th there's a lot we didn't get to cover, but maybe you should tell them about the other sort of elements of the book that you deal with. Well, um, valediction.net uh, is a website where you can find um, all kinds of things, background. We have, for instance, the interview we did with Charles Kogan is on there, and along with all kinds of papers we've written. It's just loaded with all the background material. So if you decide that you wanna buy the book, you can really see the source material and the evolution. Some of it goes back to, um, you know, uh, the, the 90s and the 80s, you know, the, the, the films that we did, uh, the, the documentary we did in 1981 for PBS, you can watch that. So you can get a whole sense of the reality. And then when you actually sit down to read the book, hopefully, you, you can really, you know, see the sense of the reality that we experienced on the page because in the book, we're really walking through 
the emotional. It's not just the intellectual. It's the emotional. It's the spiritual. It's the the a sense. It's like get get getting information from all five senses, and it finally all comes together, and and it presents itself in a way we hope that will help you actually feel as if you're really walking with us through the experience. I mean, we've really come to the conclusion that the narrative forum and uh, is really the best way to communicate these complex ideas and experiences. Uh, you know, nobody can has the time to sit down and pour through, you know, uh, the, the the textbooks and the background the way we've the way we've done, and we don't, certainly don't expect that. And so I think that was the what we decided was the best way for anybody who's not familiar with this, and you can't be as familiar as you need to be, uh, is to is to basically set it out in terms of the experience that we had and how we had it. And all these different, as you said, a spider web, all these things just start happening and you don't even necessarily know at the time. And when you're living in an analog world and one event follows another, you don't know that you're entering this digital world where you're getting downloads of, of information, but you have no place to put it. So that's what we did with this. And in our next book, we'll do it even more, taking those downloads of information and putting them in the proper perspective historically so that we can come to an understanding as we understood it. And if you disagree with our understanding, you can disagree with our understanding. But this is what we were presenting you, the evidence that we chose to, uh, you know, to come to this conclusion of. Well, I look forward to your next book and I'll have to, hopefully we can have you back on again because I didn't even get to mention the BCCI and uh, uh, oh, mystical yeah. imperialism. So uh, we'll have to have you back on again and I look forward to your next book. Thank you again, Paul and Liz. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gold, authors of The Valediction, Three Nights of Desmond. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Believe it or not, most of my income comes not from my sponsors, but you, the listener that supports me on Patreon. If I'm expected to keep this show going full time, I very much need your support by donating monthly to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's goodies that you'll get every month at the $5 tier and above. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout out. So producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and the fine folks at the Mir Project, or Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing. They are doing some fine work with regards to innovative fixes for climate change crises. Check out their work. And of course, if you'd like to join them and all the other aforementioned supporters of the show in getting a producer's credit shout out, please consider joining the $10 tier or above 
at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.